0: Welcome to a continued reading of the Doctrine of Absolute Predestination by Jerome Zanchius. Now if penal fire was, in decree from everlasting, prepared for them, they, by all the laws of argument in the world, must have been in the counsel of God prepared, i.e. designed for that fire, which is a point I undertook to prove. Hence we read of the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, put together, made up, formed or fashioned for perdition, Romans 9, who are and can be no other than the reprobate. To multiply scriptures on this head would be almost endless. For example, consult Proverbs 16.4, 1 Peter 2.8, 2 Peter 2.12, Jude 4, Revelation Position 4 As the future faith and good works of the elect were not the cause of their being chosen, so neither were the future sins of the reprobate the cause of their being passed by. But both the choice of the former and the decretive omission of the latter were owing merely and entirely to the sovereign will and determining pleasure of God. We distinguish between preterition or bare non-election, which is a purely negative thing and condemnation or appointment to punishment. The will of God was the cause of the former. The sins of the non-elect are the reason of the latter. Though God determined to leave, and actually does leave, whom he pleases in the spiritual darkness and death of nature, out of which he is under no obligation to deliver them, Yet he does not positively condemn any of these merely because he has not chosen them, but because they have sinned against him. See Romans 1, 21, 24, Romans 2, 8, 9, and 2 Thessalonians 2, 12. Their preterition, or non-inscription in the book of life, is not unjust on the part of God. Because out of the world of rebels, equally involved in guilt, God, who might without any impeachment of his justice have passed by all, as he did the reprobate angels, was most unquestionably at liberty, if it so pleased him, to extend the scepter of his clemency to some, and to pitch upon whom he would as the objects of it. Nor was this exemption of some any injury to the non-elect, whose case would have been just as bad as it is even supposing the others had not been chosen at all. Again, the condemnation of the ungodly, for it is under that count alone that they are the subjects of punishment and were ordained to it, is not unjust, seeing it is for sin and only for sin. None are or will be punished but for their iniquities, and all iniquity is properly meritorious of punishment. Where then, is the supposed unmercifulness, tyranny, or injustice, of the divine procedure. Position five. God is the creator of the wicked, but not of their wickedness. He is the author of their being, but not the infuser of their sin. It is most certainly his will, for adorable and unsearchable reasons, to permit sin. But with all possible reverence be it spoken, it should seem that he cannot, consistently with the purity of his nature, the glory of his attributes, and the truth of his declarations, be himself the author of it. Sin, says the apostle, entered into the world by one man, meaning by Adam. Consequently, he was not introduced by the deity himself though without the permission of his will and the concurrence of his providence, his introduction had been impossible, yet is he not hereby the author of sin so introduced? Luther observes, It is a great degree of faith to believe that God is merciful and gracious, though he saves so few and condemns so many, and that he is strictly just, though in consequence of his own will, he made us not exempt from uh, libelness to condemnation. And uh, chapter 148, Although God does not make sin, nevertheless he ceases not to create and multiply individuals in the human nature, which through the withholding of his spirit is corrupted by sin, just as a skillful artist may form curious statues out of bad materials. So, such as their nature is, Such are men themselves. God forms them out of such a nature. Position 6. The condemnation of the reprobate is necessary and inevitable, which we prove thus. It is evident from scripture that the reprobate shall be condemned, but nothing comes to pass, much less can the condemnation of a rational creature but in consequence of the will and decree of God. Therefore the non-elect could not be condemned was it not the divine pleasure and determination that they should, and if God wills and determines their condemnation, that condemnation is necessary and inevitable. But their sins, by their sins they have made themselves guilty of death, and as it is not the will of God to pardon those sins and grant them repentance unto life, the punishment of such impenitent sinners is as unavoidable as it is just. It is our Lord's own declaration that a crooked tree cannot bring forth good fruit, Matthew 7, or in other words, that a depraved sinner cannot produce in himself those gracious habits, nor exert those gracious acts without which no adult person can be saved. Consequently, the reprobate must as corrupt, fruitless trees, or fruitful and evil only, be hewn down and cast into the fire, Matthew 3. This therefore serves as another argument in proof of the inevitability of their future punishment, which argument, in brief, amounts to this. They who are not saved from sin must unavoidably perish, but the reprobate are not saved from sin. For they have neither will nor power to save themselves. And God, though he certainly can, yet he certainly will not save them. Therefore their perdition is unavoidable. Nor does it follow from hence that God forces the reprobate into sin and thereby into misery against their wills, but that in consequence of their natural depravity, which is not the divine pleasure to deliver them out of, neither is he bound to do it, nor are they themselves so much as desirous that he would. They are voluntarily biased, inclined to evil, nay, which is worse still, they hug and value their spiritual chains, and even greedily pursue the paths of sin, which lead to the chambers of death. Thus God does not, as we are slanderously reported to affirm, compel the wicked to sin, as the rider spurs forward an unwilling horse. God only says in effect that tremendous word, let them alone, Matthew 15, 14. He, not, he need but slacken the reins of providential restraint and withhold the influence of saving grace. An apostate man will too soon and too surely of own accord fall by his iniquity. He will presently be, spiritually speaking, and without any other efficiency, lay violent hands on his own soul so that though the condemnation of the reprobate is unavoidable yet the necessity of it is so far from making them mere machines or involuntary agents that it does not in the least interfere with the rational freedom of their wills nor serve to render them less inexcusable. Position 7 The punishment of the non-elect was not the ultimate end of their creation, but the glory of God. It is frequently objected to us that, according to our view of predestination, God makes some persons on purpose to damn them. But this we never advanced. May we utterly reject it as equally unworthy of God to do, and of a rational being to suppose. The grand principle aimed, proposed by the deity to himself in his formation of all things, and of mankind in particular, was the manifestation and display of his own glorious attributes. His ultimate scope in the creation of the elect is to evidence and make known by their salvation the unsearchable riches of his power and wisdom, mercy and love, and the creation of the non-elect is for the display of his justice, power, sovereignty, holiness and truth. So that nothing can be more certain than the declaration of the text we have frequently had occasion to cite. The Lord hath made all things for himself, even the wicked for the day of evil. Proverbs 16. On one hand, the vessels of wrath are fitted for destruction, in order that God may show his wrath and make his power known, and manifest the greatness of his patience and long-suffering. Romans 9.32 On the other hand, he prepared the elect to salvation, that on them he might demonstrate the riches of his glory and mercy. Verse 23 As therefore God himself is the sole author and efficient of all his own actions, so is he likewise a supreme end to which they lead and in which they terminate. Besides, the creation and perdition of the ungodly, answer another purpose, though a subordinate one, with regard to the elect themselves, who from the rejection of those learn, one, to admire the riches of the divine love towards themselves, which planned and has accomplished the work of their salvation, while others, by nature on an equal level with them,
1: are excluded
0: from a participation of the same benefits." And such a view of the Lord's distinguishing mercy is, too, a most powerful motive to thankfulness, that when they too might justly have been condemned with the world of the non-elect, they were marked out as heirs of the grace of life. Three, hereby they are taught ardently to love their Heavenly Father. Four, to trust in Him assuredly for a continuous supply of grace while they are on earth, and for the accomplishment of his eternal decree and promise by their glorification in heaven, and five, to live as become those who have received such unspeakable mercies from the hand of their God and Saviour. So Bucer somewhere observes that the punishment of the reprobate is useful to the elect inasmuch as it influences them to a greater fear and abhorrence of sin, and to a firmer reliance on the goodness of God. Position 8 Notwithstanding, God did from all eternity, irreversibly choose out and fix upon some to be partakers of salvation by Christ, and rejected the rest, who are therefore turned by the apostle, hoi loipoi, the refuge, or those that remained and were left out acting in both according to the good pleasure of his own sovereign will, yet he did not here in act an unjust, tyrannical or cruel part, nor yet show himself a respecter of persons. 1. He is not unjust in reprobating some, neither can he be so, for the Lord is holy in all his ways, and righteous in all his works. Psalm 100. And forty-five, but salvation and damnation are works of His. Consequently, neither of them is unrighteous or unholy. It is undoubted matter of fact that the Father draws some men to Christ and saves them in Him with an everlasting salvation, and that He neither draws nor saves some others. Then, if it be not unjust in God actually to forbear saving these persons after they are born, it could not be unjust in him to determine as much before they were born. What is not unjust for God to do in time, could not, by parity of argument, be unjust in him to resolve upon and decree from eternity. And surely, if the Apostle's illustration be allowed to have any propriety or to carry any authority, It can no more be unjust in God to set apart some for communion with himself in this life and the next and to set aside others according to his own free pleasure than for a potter to make out of the same mass of clay some vessels for honourable and others for inferior uses. The deity, being absolute lord of all his creatures, is accountable to none for his doings and cannot be chargeable with injustice for disposing of his own, as he will. 2. Nor is the decree of reprobation a tyrannical one. It is indeed strictly sovereign, but lawful sovereignty and lawless tyranny are as really distinct and different as any two opposites can be. He is a tyrant in the common acceptation of that word, who, a., either usurps the sovereign authority and arrogates to himself a dominion to which he has no right, or B, who being originally a lawful prince, abuses his power and governs a contrary to law. But who dares to lay either of these accusations to the divine charge? God as creator has a most unquestionable and unlimited right over the souls and bodies of men, unless it can be supposed Contrary to all scripture and common sense, that in making of man he said he made a set of beings superior to himself and exempt from his jurisdiction, taking it for granted, and therefore that God has an absolute right of sovereignty over his creatures, if he should be pleased as the scripture repeatedly shows us that he is to manifest and display that right by graciously saving some and justly punishing others for their sins, who are we that we should reply against God? Neither does the ever-blessed deity fall under the second notion of a tyrant, namely, as one who abuses his power by acting contrary to law, for for by what exterior law is he bound, who is the supreme lawgiver of the universe? The laws promulgated by him are designed for the rule of our conduct, not of his. Should it be objected that his own attributes of goodness and justice, holiness and truth, are a law to himself? I answer that, admitting this to be the case, there is nothing in the decree of reprobation as represented in scripture and by us from thence which clashes with any of those perfections. With regard to the divine goodness,
1: though the non-elect
0: are not objects of it, in the sense the elect are, yet even they are not wholly excluded from a participation of it. They enjoy the good things of providence in common with God's children, and very often in a much higher degree. Besides, goodness considered as it is in God would have been just the same infinite and glorious attribute supposing no rational creatures have been created at all or saved when created, to which may be added that the goodness of the deity does not cease to be infinite in itself, only because it is more extended to some objects than it is to others. The infinity of this perfection, as residing in God and coinciding with his essence, is sufficiently secured, without supposing it to reach, indiscriminately to all the creatures he has made. For was this way of reasoning to be admitted? It would lead us too far and prove too much, since if the infinity of his goodness is to be estimated by the number of objects upon which it terminates, there must be an absolute proper infinity of reasonable beings to terminate that goodness upon. Consequently, we follow from such premises either that the creation is as truly infinite as the creator, or if otherwise, that the creator's goodness could not be infinite, because it it has not an infinity of objects to make happy. Lastly, if it was not incompatible with God's infinite goodness to pass by the whole body of fallen angels, and leave them under the guilt of their apostasy, much less can it clash with that attribute to pass by some of fallen mankind and resolve to leave them in their sins and punish them for them. Nor is it inconsistent with divine justice to withhold saving grace from some, seeing the grace of God is not what he owes to any. It is a free gift to those who have it, and it is not due to those that are without it. Consequently, there can be no injustice in not giving what God is not bound to bestow. There is no evil of tabling at at the divine dispensations if men are disposed to do it. We might, with equality of reason, when our hand is in, presume to charge a deity with partiality for not making all his creatures angels because it was in his power to do so as charging with injustice for not electing all mankind. Besides, how can it possibly be subversive to his justice to condemn, and resolve to condemn, the non elect for their sins, when those very sins were not atoned for by Christ as the sins of the elect were? His justice, in this case, is so far from hindering the condemnation of the reprobate that it renders it necessary and indispensable. Again, is the decree of sovereign preterition and of just condemnation for sin repugnant to the divine holiness? Not in the least, so far from it, that it does not appear how the deity could be holy if he did not hate sin and punish it. Neither is it contrary to his truth and veracity. Quite the reverse for would not the divine veracity fall to the ground if the finally wicked were not condemned? 3. God in the reprobation of some does not act a cruel part. Whoever accused a chief magistrate of cruelty for not sparing a company of atrocious manufacturers and for letting the sentence of the law take place upon them by their execution... If indeed the magistrate pleases to pity some of them and remit their penalty, we applaud his clemency. But the punishment of the rest is no impeachment of his mercy. Now with regard to God, his mercy is free and voluntary. He may extend it to and withhold it from whom he pleases. Romans 9, 15, 18. And it is sad indeed if we were not allowed the sovereign... The all wise governor of heaven and earth, the same privilege and liberty we allow to a supreme magistrate below. four. Nor is God in choosing some and rejecting others a respecter of persons. He only comes under that title who, on account of parentage, parentage, country, dignity, wealth, or for any other external consideration shows more favour to one person than to another. But that is not the case with God. He considers all men as sinners by nature, and has complete passion, not on persons of this or that sect, country, sex, age or station in life, because they are so circumstanced, but on whom and because he will have compassion. Pertinent to the present purpose is that passage of St. Augustine, For as much as some people imagine that they must look on God as a respecter of persons, if they believe that without any respect had to the previous merits of men, he hath mercy on whom he will, and calls whom it is his pleasure to call, and makes good whom he pleases. The scrupulousness of such people arises from their not duly attending to this one thing, namely that the damnation is rendered to the wicked as a matter of debt, justice and desert, whereas the grace given to those who are delivered is free and unmerited, so that the condemned sinner cannot allege that he is unworthy of his punishment, nor the saint vaunt or boast as if he was worthy of his reward. Thus in the whole course of this procedure there is no respect for persons. They who are condemned and they who are set at liberty constituted originally one and the same lump, equally infected with sin, and liable to vengeance.
1: Hence the justified,
0: may learn from the condemnation of the rest, that would have been their own punishment, had not God's free grace stepped in to their rescue. Before I conclude this, head, I will obviate a fallacious objection, very common in the mouths of our opponents, How, they say, is the doctrine of reprobation reconcilable with the doctrine of a future judgment? To which I answer that there need be no pains to reconcile these two, since they are so far from interfering with each other, that one follows from the other, and the former renders the latter absolutely necessary. Before the judgment of the great day, Christ does not so much act as the judge of his creatures, as their absolute Lord and Sovereign. From the first creation to the final consummation of all things he does, in consequence of his own eternal and immutable purpose as a divine person, graciously work in and on his own elect, and permissively harden the reprobate. But when all the transactions of providence and grace are wound up in the last day, he will then properly sit as Judge and openly publish and solemnly rectify, if I may so say, his everlasting decrees by receiving the elect, body and soul into glory, and by passing sentence on the non-elect, not for their having done what they could not help, but for their willful ignorance of divine things, and their absolute unbelief, for their omissions of moral duty, and for their repeated iniquities and transgressions. Position 9. Notwithstanding God's predestination is most certain and un- utter- unalterable, so that no elect person can perish, nor any reprobate be saved, yet it does not follow from thence that all precepts, reproofs, and exhortations on the part of God, or prayers on the part of man, are useless, vain, and insignificant. 1. These are not useless with regard to the elect, for they are necessary means of bringing them to the knowledge of the truth at first, afterwards of stirring up their pure minds by way of remembrance, and of edifying and establishing them in faith, love, and holiness. Hence that of St. Augustine, the commandment will tell thee, O man, what thou oughtest to have, reproof will show thee wherein thou art wanting, and praying will teach thee from whom thou must receive the supplies which thou wantest. 2. Nor are these vain with regard to the reprobate, for precept, reproof, and exhortation may, if duly attended to, be a means of making them careful to adjust their moral, external conduct according to the rules of decency, justice, and regularity, and thereby prevent much inconvenience to themselves and injury to society.
1: And as for prayer,
0: it is the duty of all without exception. Every created being, whether elect or reprobate, matters not at this point, is as such dependent on the creature for all things, and if dependent, ought to have recourse to him, both in a way of supplication and thanksgiving. Three. But to come closer still. That absolute predestination does not a set aside nor render superfluous the use of preaching, exhortation, etc., we prove from the examples of Christ himself and his apostles, who all taught and insisted upon the article of predestination, and yet took every opportunity of preaching to sinners, and enforced their ministry with proper rebukes, invitations, and exhortations as occasion required. Though they showed unanswerably that salvation is a free gift of God and lies entirely at his sovereign disposal, that men can of themselves do nothing spiritually good, and that it is God who of his own pleasure works in them, both to will and to do. Yet they did not neglect to address their auditors as beings possessed of reason and conscience, nor omitted to remind them of their duties as such. But showed them their sin and danger by nature, and laid before them the appointed way and method of salvation as exhibited in the gospel. Our Saviour Himself expressly and in terminus assures us that no man can come to him except the Father draw him, and yet he says, Come unto me, all ye that labour, etc. So Peter told the Jews they had fulfilled the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, in putting the Messiah to death, Acts 2, and yet sharply rebukes them for it. St. Paul declares, It is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, and yet exhorts the Corinthians so to run as to obtain the prize. He assures us that we know not what to pray for as we ought, Romans 8, and yet directs us to pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5. He avers that the foundation or decree of the Lord stands sure, and yet cautions him who thinks he stands to take heed lest he fall, 1 Timothy 2. St. James, in like manner, says that every good and perfect gift cometh down from above, and yet exhorts those who want wisdom to ask it of God. So then, all these being means whereby the elect are frequently enlightened into the knowledge of Christ, and by which they are, after they have believed through grace, built up in him, on a means of their perseverance in grace to the end. These are so far from being vain and insignificant that they are highly useful and necessary, and answer many valuable and important ends, without in the least shaking the doctrine of predestination in particular or the analogy of faith in general. Thus, St. Augustine, we must preach, we must reprove, we must pray, because they to whom grace is given will hear and act accordingly, though though they to whom grace is not given will do neither.
1: This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books.